This morning, um, I want to talk about uh, making a, a statement. There's, there's many ways uh, to make a statement. For, for some people, making a statement is as simple as just opening your mouth and sharing the message, whatever that may be. Uh, very plain and very simple. But oftentimes, the, the statements that we make go beyond just the words that we say. Uh, studies actually show us that over 80% of what we communicate is, is nonverbal. It's expressed in different ways. And so sending a message, uh, making a statement, oftentimes encapsulates far more than just what we say. It's it's, it's how we say what we say. It's, it's sometimes, you know, how we dress the, the, the things that we project as we speak. And, and so maybe one of the best examples of this is the um, celebrity award shows. I, I don't know if anybody watches them anymore. Um, I don't. Um, but there always seems to be as much attention and, and buzz um, about the arrival of the stars as maybe even more than the awards that they hand out themselves. And, you know, from the moment they, they step out of their limos and they promenade down the, the red carpet, there's, there's cameras flashing and reporters commenting on how they look, what they're wearing, who they're with, and all kinds of other useless details that uh, go into the statement that's, that's made. Um, you know, statements can be made by entrances, and, and entries, entrances are, are, are moments to seize, and, and, and they can leave a lasting impression. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at a statement that, that Jesus made when he arrived into Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the series is called The Journey. And we've been discovering and journeying and understanding who Jesus is. That's been sort of the question we've been looking, what he's all about, and, and what does it mean for us today to follow after him? What does that look like? And so this morning, we are up to Mark chapter 11, and this is the, this is the moment where Jesus makes his grand entrance into the royal city of Jerusalem. It's oftentimes um, equated with Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, um, but we're going to unpack it this morning because that's where we're at. And, and what we're going to find in the passage this morning are, are two portraits and one promise. And, and so the statement is made in, in picture form. That's described here. And it's often said that a picture is worth a thousand words. And so as we, as we look at this scene and see this snapshot, we're going to unpack what it's saying to us. So if you happen to have a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 11. Uh, the passage is also right behind me. And I'm going to read the uh, first 11 verses. It says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever ridden before. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had cut from the fields. 
And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And finally, as he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Okay, so this is, this is scene number one. And, and the first scene, this picture is, is painting a picture of, of majesty, of, of the majesty of Jesus. And, and Jesus had waited for this particular moment for his grand reveal, for, for, for presenting himself publicly as the true king and messiah. If you've been with us, you'll remember that up to this point, what we've seen is that Jesus went out of his way to kind of keep things quiet about himself, to be quiet about his identity. But now he's, he's switching from, from conceal mode to, to full reveal mode, and, and all the stops are out. Um, so the one thing we see is that he makes very intentional arrangements to arrive, to ride in on a very particular mode of transportation. It's an unwritten cult. And, and what he's doing here is fulfilling an ancient prophecy. So centuries before this time, the prophet Zechariah wrote about how Israel would be able to identify the true Messiah. And he wrote this. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, so those words were written hundreds of years prior, and it's Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. He's making a very unmistakable statement here, right? He's, he's saying, it's me. I am the one that you've been waiting for. Israel's promised king is me, and I have arrived. But there's also something unmistakably peculiar about any kind of king who rides in gently on a donkey's back, right? Because that would not have been the kind of king that Israel was looking for. Their expectations were set on a conquering king. They were looking for someone to come storming in on a white stallion or some kind of war horse. They wanted someone who was ready to lead the charge and take on Israel's oppressors, the the Roman Empire. And this picture is making the point, is making that statement that the Savior they were expecting is very different from the Savior they got. And so the disciples are there. They're a part of this uh, promenade, and, and they give up their coats to make a comfortable seat for Jesus to ride in on. And, and as he parades through the city limits of Jerusalem, he's surrounded by fanfare, followers who have already seen him work and do things that no one else has been able to do. And, and so the followers, they, they paved the streets with their coats and, and with palm branches. And that would have been an ancient way of rolling out the red carpet. So what they're doing is they're, they're sending a message. They are broadcasting a message to everyone within earshot. Take note and pay attention. Do not miss what's happening right now. And, and, and it's worth noting that there would have been plenty of people to notice what was going on here because this is all starting at the very beginning of the Passover week, the, the holiest time in the Jewish calendar. Um, and Jews from all over the Roman Empire would have been flooding into the holy city. And so a lot of people are seeing the buzz. They're, they're, they're seeing what's going on. And just in case the 
the actions aren't speaking for themselves. Uh, Listen to the words they shout out loud. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They say, Hosanna in the highest. Those, Those are loaded words. They are dripping with expectation. And all of these all of these words are being directed directly onto Jesus. So, so in the MIV translation, and just in case you don't know, the MIV is the McIntyre International Version, um, translated this way. Listen up. The hero that you've been waiting for is on the scene. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the man. That's that's what they're saying. They're, 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 they say, Hosanna. That, that word is a shout for salvation. It's a desperate cry for help. It means save us now. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. In other words, they're saying that, you know, King David, who had up to this point been Israel's ultimate king, ideal king, they're saying, guys, his, his throne has been sitting empty. It's been vacant for a very long time. We've been waiting so long for the right person to step up and fill it. They're saying it's, it's Jesus. He is the one. And, and so kind of picture it's something like they're saying, Jesus, it is the bottom of the ninth. We are down in this game big time. So we're waiting for you to step up to the plate and hit the home run and win the game. Do what no one else has been able to do be our savior and save the day. Now the people, they, they got the who right. They got the who about Jesus right, that this was indeed Israel's king. This was their Messiah that had been prophesied and was waiting for. And Jesus, he fully embraces that. There is zero pushback on his part about that. They were right about that about the who, but they were, they were wrong about the what. They couldn't comprehend what this Messiah riding into Jerusalem had in mind to do. That, that this hero had no intentions of stepping up to a throne and becoming king. His goal, his idea, he came instead to go to a cross and to die as their Passover lamb. He was coming to be that sacrifice, to lay down his life, to pay the ransom price for sin. And so his, his idea, he hadn't come to conquer Rome. He had in mind to conquer death, a much greater enemy. And so if we look at this scene and we see in this portrait of majesty, what statement is Jesus making? What he's saying is that this true king came in giving up everything, laying it all down. Reason being is so the doors of the kingdom of God that had been closed to us could swing wide open to people like you, to people like me, people who on our own, we can just never find our own way into God's kingdom because the reality is no amount of good deeds, no no amount of acts of devotion, no trying to be good enough would ever be enough. It would never do. Jesus came riding in to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so statement number one, if we look close enough, what we hear and we see is, is this hero whose heart is beating and bursting over with love 
for you and for me. So that's scene number one and the statement that that scene is making. Let's go on um, to the next scene. And before I do that, though, I need to just take one second and um, just kind of provide a little bit of context for what we're about to read because this next section um, is going to tell two stories. And these two stories get wrapped up together on purpose. It, it is about the twisted fates of both a fig tree and the Jerusalem temple. Um, and so Mark, as he's writing this, he sandwiches them both together on purpose. So he talks about the temple, then he talks about the fig tree, then he talks about the temple again, and then the fig tree. And so you want to you wanna keep that in mind. And, and, and the idea is that they're sandwiched together and you want to eat the whole sandwich, okay? That's kind of the point, that, the, the interpretive point. So you don't want to pull the sandwich apart because what happens when you pull the sandwich apart? It just makes a mess, right? Um, and so as we read about this, put them both together. The fate of the fig tree is an object lesson to help us understand and illustrate the, the fate of the temple, okay? That's enough for now. Let's just read what it says. And it says this, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And he came to it and he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. All right. Um, And then it says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. So let's just stop and unpack this second scene. This scene is painting a picture of Jesus as the ultimate authority. Uh, Once again, that when Jesus is, is arriving in Jerusalem... What we see is the very first thing he does is he goes to the temple. And when he arrives, it's it's later in the day and things are quiet. The city's kind of shut down for the night. Everyone's at home. And all he sees is this incredible, massive, beautiful structure, the Jerusalem temple. It, It was, at the time, an architectural marvel. It's the best way to describe it. It was an absolute sight to behold. But... What Jesus sees first is very different from what he ultimately finds. And that's kind of the same thing as what happens with the fig tree. He first sees the leaves on it. The idea is that there should be some growth happening. It looked good, but he doesn't find what he's looking for. There wasn't any fruit. So the next day he goes back to the temple and same thing happens. He doesn't find what he's looking for. The temple isn't doing what God had designed it to do. In fact, what's going on there within the temple walls of this beautiful edifice is the exact opposite of God's intentions. See, this temple was was intended to be a house of worship, but it had turned into a center of commerce. 
God had designed the temple to be that one place of all the earth where, where the manifest presence of the one true living God could be found. It was supposed to be a beacon light for the nations of the world so they would see what's going on there. They'd be drawn to it and they'd learn about the Lord. Listen, just for a second, here's how the prophet Isaiah described God's intentions for his, for his house, for this temple. It says this in Isaiah chapter 2, that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall, say, shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. That was God's intentions. And yet there in that one section of the temple, which is Jesus is in, it was called the, uh, the court of the Gentiles. This was the place for the nations to come in and it's filled with tables and commerce and buying and selling and people are passing through and nothing is going on the way it's supposed to. There's this utter disconnect between God's intentions and the reality of how things were. And, and so Jesus puts on a display. He kind of puts on a, a little bit of a defiant drama. This is, this is the king exercising his authority. And so he drives out, um, I don't know if you notice, not just the sellers, but the buyers as well. He drove everybody out. And, and what he's doing is a bit of a prophetic expression of outrage. This is not supposed to be. This is not supposed to be happening. And, and by the way, it was just a, a single expression. It didn't last, right? There's no reason to think that as soon as Jesus left the building that they didn't just put the tables back in place and, and go right back to selling and buying. Uh, and it just all continued the way that it had. Be that as it may, though, don't miss the point here, here's what the point is, that Jesus assumes the authority to call things to account. He arrives as the ultimate authority. He assumes the role both of fruit inspector and building inspector. And so what's important to note here in this story that Mark is telling us about Jesus, the message he's sending here is not, guys, this temple of yours is a mess clean it up, all right? That's not what it is. The end of the fig story shows us what the end of it is. He ends up cursing the fig tree. It's actually the last miracle that Jesus does. And the fig tree shrivels up and it dies. So, so this is not Jesus cleansing the temple. This is Jesus closing the temple. He is shutting it down. The statement that he is making is that this property has been condemned. This, this temple, it's just been so central to everything God's people have been about is about to close and collapse. Uh, I had a very similar thing to this that, that I think of in this is uh, several years ago, uh, my wife Diane worked for a company and uh, had a great relationship with the founder of the company. Um, and then we had a couple of kids, and she kind of dialed back work for a while. And then she went back into work, and, and the, the founder of the company had kind of already made all of his money and done what he wants. So he was kind of off on the sidelines. He loved Diane and said, you can do whatever you want. She came in. The people who were running the company started to 
actually threaten her, um, threaten to, to sue her and do all kinds of like crazy things. Um, one day she was talking to um, this sister-in-law of the owner, and she says, tell me what's going on. And Diane tells her what's going on. And she says, don't tell you know, the previous, the owner. And she says, I don't care what you say, I am telling him. So she told the owner, and the owner actually called up the people who were running the company, and he shut it down. He actually forced them to close the company because of the way they were treating her, forced them to take the name down, and they had to open up under an entirely different name. And so uh, he had the authority to do that because he was the owner, and Jesus assumes the authority to actually close this the center of religious life that the whole Jewish culture revolved around and and shut it down. He talks about it here. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Uh, It took a few years. A few years later, though, in 70 AD, if you know your history, the Jerusalem temple was ransacked and it was leveled. It was burnt to the ground. And ever since that day, up till today, It's never been built back up. So the Jewish people today, they they have no temple. And, And this Jesus who entered the temple that day, he walked in with the authority to shut it down. He called it out and he shut it down. You know, one of the themes that we've been looking at throughout this gospel is that Jesus steps into each and every scene, every situation, as the first, the final, and the ultimate authority, right? The religious leaders see what he's doing, and they don't like that. They're going to take issue with Jesus' authority. They're going to try to dispute his authority, but what they are going to find out is that ultimately his authority will not be denied. And here's the thing. Jesus enters into the landscape of your life and my life in the same way. He is the ultimate authority. Like it or not. Sometimes we may not like that. Sometimes we may dispute against that. We might try to maintain this facade that we are the masters of our own destiny, that we don't answer to anyone other than us. No one else is in charge of my life but me. This This is the lie of autonomy. It pervades our culture, it pervades our society, but the reality is that each and every person is accountable to our creator, to our redeemer, to the highest authority of all, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And so as we see this scene, as we understand and comprehend the statement it's making, it it, it, kind of causes us to ask ourselves a very challenging question. The question is this, is, is there space in my life for a Jesus like that, right? With that kind of authority. He's not the God of our own making. He doesn't just align with whatever we want him to do. He doesn't answer to us, we answer to him. And he cares about what's going on in our lives. He cares about the fruit that's being produced from our lives. He cares not just about the way things look, but what's going on and what's coming out. All right, those are 
Those are two portraits, the, the grand entrance, the, the temple. And finally, the passage is going to close here with one very major league staggering promise. Let's read about it right now. It says this. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered him and said, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who also is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. You know, we just, we just read one of the most powerful promises found in the entire Bible. It's, it's amazing. Jesus is replying to Peter's observation about this withered fig tree and he launches into this whole expository kind of thing about, about prayer and God's power, and, and how to connect faith with prayer, and that the outcome will be seeing God at work in our lives. So, so just to put it in context, here's what Jesus is telling them. He's, he's, he's already said about the temple. He's that, that temple that had been designed to be a house of prayer, so that, that place is closing down. Now, it's no longer about a physical place. From this point forward, it's not about a place, it's about a people about this, this new kingdom community that, that Jesus is building. It's what we call church today. And just by the way, church, we, 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 call, we go to church as if it's a building, but church isn't a place, it's a people, right? It's a community. Um, it's replacing that old, worn-out structure. And, and Jesus' people gathered together. We are now the beacon through which the world might come to know that there is a God who is, at li- who is alive, who is at work, and is active in people's lives and in this world. And so what he's saying is that prayer is at the very center of how that purpose gets fulfilled. Now, now I got to tell you, my natural inclination, you guys who know me, I don't know if you even say this, my natural inclination when I come to a passage like this that says, whatever you ask in prayer Believe that you received it and it will be yours. You know me. I'm going to give you all of the uh, clarifications and disclaimers about that, right? Um, I want to make sure that we are so careful to to not take these promises out of context. And, And many of you are probably aware of how passages like this have been used and abused to fool people into believing God for things that he never promised them. Um, That's my inclination. But this morning, I'm just going to try to just not pay attention to all that because here's what my impression is, at least for myself, that there is a greater danger than, um, than, than making more of this promise than it is, and that would be to reduce this promise to less than it is, less than what Jesus meant it to be. I got to think that that's at least as bad. Maybe it's even worse, reducing faith to nothing beyond just, yeah, just keep trying your best and do what you can. That's, that's not what this passage is about, right? This is about living with eagerness and a sense of expectation and desperate faith and always pushing and leaning into God 
and depending on him to do more than what we can do, right? Asking him to show up in powerful ways. And, and so there's this, there's this undeniable theme. Uh, we've seen it as we've made our way through this book of Mark. It makes this direct connection between having faith, believing God, and seeing him work, right? We, we can't get away from that. All the way back in chapter two, there was this, these friends who were lowering their paralytic friend down on a stretcher through the roof to Jesus. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, that's when he went and worked, right? Chapter five, a few weeks ago, we saw that after he healed this woman's bleeding issue and, and, uh, and, and Jairus, her daughter died and Jesus tells him, do not fear, only believe. And he goes on and raises her from the dead. Chapter six, when Jesus was returning home, he goes back to his hometown. And this is probably one of the saddest things in the whole book. He says he could do no mighty works there. And he marveled at their unbelief. And then chapter nine, this father is asking Jesus, can you help my son if it's possible? And Jesus answers, says, if is not the question, everything is possible for those who believe. So maybe, maybe the challenge for us this morning is not that we believe too much. Maybe, if you're anything like me, it's that we're not, we're not believing enough. See, God's design is for his people to be that beacon, to be a light in a dark world. And it takes faith. It takes prayer in order for that to happen. Faith-filled prayer is foundational. It's, it's not an optional accessory. The default setting of the, setting of the Christian life is meant to be set on believing God for what's beyond us. And, and in some kind of mysterious way that I don't fully get, I don't understand, that that opens up access to the supernatural power of God. Right? It's not something we just conjure up. Um, it comes out of this conviction about who God is, about what he's doing in this world, about his plan for redemption, about what he wants to do through us and standing on that. And here's the reality. There is nothing on earth that compares to that. And prayer is where the power of God gets unleashed. And I think I have a clue, maybe, that there may be situations in your life, there are in my life, there's places around that, that need the supernatural intervention of God to take place, right? There's, 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 there's nothing wrong with just, you know, let's be nice, let's love on people, let's do what we can, and that's great. But man, there's places where there's just no substitute for the supernatural power of God landing down and doing something great. Let's not shrink back from that. Our, our denomination, um, one of the sayings that they have, which I, I really like, it's expectation without agenda. Expectation with, without agenda. It's this, this orientation that we bring where we're leaning into God with a, with a faith expectation. He, he wants us to do that. But the outcome, it's not up to us. Um, you know, he sets the agenda, he sets the time frame, he sets all that kind of stuff, and that's good. We can leave it at that. So let's not, let's not stop believing. Let's not stop believing God for, 
for big things. He, he's given us what's called a, a great commission. It's called go to all the world, teaching them to, 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 to believe and to follow everything I've told you, Jesus said. And a, a great commission like that needs the great work, the great power of God. And so that's the statement. Pray. Pray faith-filled prayers. Pray expect and pray desperately, pray dependently. So these are, these are the statements that we find in this passage as Jesus is making his way in. He's, he's saying it by the way that he comes into his royal city. He's saying it by the, the, what he demonstrates in his holy temple. And he says it by, by the instructions he gives about seeking his power in prayer to accomplish his purposes question is, how will we respond? We've seen a statement, how will we respond? And what would it be like if we were to see him clearly, listen to him fully, and respond in faith, trust, and obedience? What, a, what an impact that could make in our, in our lives, in our families, at our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Let's not stop down. Let's not Keep from doing that and seeking him. Pray with me.